And if you are tracking with us, we are in the gospel according to Luke. Turn in your Bibles there. We are in chapter 11, wrapping up chapter uh, 11 through verses uh, 27 through 36, read by actually Pastor Elder in training, Larry Robb, as well as Mike Rockefeller. Um, we made that announcement a few weeks ago. So, open chapter 11, the Gospel according to Luke, as he walked through this wonderful investigative report given to Dr. Luke by eyewitnesses, yet we know that it is fixed by the sovereignty and the superintendent of God the Holy Spirit. He has revealed to us many things about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we've seen over and over again is how the first coming of Jesus, the first advent, advent uh, is that Jesus has come to fulfill many of the Old Testament prophecies, some of which have been echoed and affirmed by the angel in chapters 1 and 2, the angel Gabriel to Joseph, excuse me, to John and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, and as well to Joseph and Mary, Jesus' earthly mom. Luke is recording for us the reality that Jesus is the coming promised Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. That's what Messiah means, the Christ. He's the king of kings who has been promised family as far back as Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 as the seed of the woman that will come and, and fatally crush the head of Satan. That's how far back the prophecies of Jesus go. He was prophesied and promised to Abraham and to Moses and to King David and others and now Jesus has come. He's calling people to respond, actually a command to respond to the good news that Jesus, the promised Messiah, the King has come. And in his first advent, we know that he will not take his rightful place on a throne, but he will die on a cross for sinners, paying the debt we owe and bearing the wrath we deserve for our sin and our rebellion. And three days later, he will rise from the dead, declaring to the whole world, the empty tomb declares to the whole world that his atoning sacrifice was accepted and forgiveness is now offered to those who would repent from their own lordship, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, and believe the gospel. But someday Jesus will return. All the promises that were made for his first coming have been fulfilled, and there's no reason for us to believe that the second coming and all the promises made there, that it will not come to pass. It will. Jesus is now calling as he's walking with him through Galilee and through uh, going heading toward Jerusalem. He's calling everyone everywhere to turn, to trust, to walk, and to follow him. He's been preaching, he's been teaching that the king has come, inaugurating his kingdom. He's demonstrating his kingliness and power and authority as he, as he teaches, as he heals the sick, as he cleanses the file, raises the dead, delivers captives who were once under the power and authority of Satan and demons. And last week in chapter 11, verses 14 through 26, we had another preview of that power and authority. Pastor Chris did a great job, and he told us that this text, chapter 11, verse 14 through 26, is all about, he said, how Jesus is the mighty deliverer and king who overthrows Satan's forces, establishes his eternal kingdom with divine authority and power. A great, succinct sentence of that text. And after Jesus casted out demons and, and the mute man spoke, some people marveled, if you turn there with me in chapter 11, some people marveled, verse 14, some people said, you know what, we're accusing Jesus that he is actually um, um, casting out demons 
by the authority of demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So some marveled. Some said, nah, he's using demonic forces. And yet others, verse 16, who tried to test him by seeking from him a sign from heaven. I go, that's cool. We want a sign. And Jesus made it clear that every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and every divided house will fall, will crumble. And in verse 20 of last week's text, Jesus said that he, he cast out demons by the finger of God because the kingdom of God has come. Jesus is here, the king of kings. And it ended last week with Jesus giving a clear warning that self-salvation or moral performance will never keep the soul, the heart safe or can never truly deliver us from the power and possession of our enemy. In other words, you can't keep your own house clean. Verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, remember, just delivered a man from demon possession, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Finding none, it says, I know, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Listen, if it is not of God, if it is without faith and a new obedient heart and, and the, uh, a new obedient heart and the new bondage that will take place will be greater than the original captivity. That's what he's saying. Thomas Chalmers was a late 18th, 19th century Scottish pastor, mathematician. He wrote a powerful sermon. You can Google it and look it up. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in it, he urged that the only way to dispose of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. He writes this. The heart must have something to cling to and never by its own voluntary consent Will it so strip itself of all its attachments that there shall be one remaining object that can draw or solicit it? It is the gospel. It is in the gospel. Do we so behold God as, the, as we may love God? It is there and there only where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners. It is when he stands dismantled, when we stand dismantled, of the terrors which belong to us as an offended lawgiver, and when we are enabled by faith to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ and to hear his voice as it protests goodwill to men and entreats the return of all who will to a full pardon and a gracious acceptance. It is when released from the spirit of bondage which love cannot dwell, and when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart, brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection, is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires. The expulsion power of a new affection. You can't clean your own house. Something else will come in its place. It needs a greater power. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle, the house must not only be swept, a new tenant must be introduced. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take its place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith, end quote. That brings us to our text. That's the context. Brings us to our text this morning. Three things we'll see as we move along in the text. Number one, a response to the word of God. We'll see that in verse 27 and 28. 
And then we'll see the a rebuke of an evil generation. Jesus calls out the generation of his day, verses 29 through verses 32. And then lastly, a revelation of gospel light. We'll see that in the following verses and then go into communion. So, verse 27. It appears that while Jesus is showing forth authority and power, verse 27, there's a lady in the crowd. She's just blown away. She hears Jesus teaching. She has the power that he is displaying. And she could not contain herself. Right, ladies? You ever been in that place? You just can't contain yourself. You've got to speak. All the guys don't laugh, guys. Unless your wife's not with you. So this very sweet, very nice, very kind lady. We don't know nothing about her. I'm just guessing. She yells out, blessed is the womb that bore you. And the breast at which you nursed. Now, at first you would think this is a shot against Jesus, but it is not. All right? It's not a shot. It's not saying, you know, you think you're great, but you know what? Who's really great? Your mama's really great. That's not what he's saying. What this woman's really saying in the original language and the understanding of that culture is, wow, you, you are a gifted young man. Your mother must be very proud of you. All right? Spoken like a true mom. She was actually admiring Jesus by blessing the mother who raised him. That's what that's saying. It's an, it's an indirect praise of the Lord himself. Which I should mention in that culture, in that day, a woman to speak out in a mixed company of men and women uh, loudly like that is quite bold. It's quite bold. And Jesus' response to her is, is not a rebuke. It's not a contradiction. You got it wrong. But a correction. As he leads her to the truth. He said to her, verse 28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He's not saying Mary's not to be considered a blessed woman. Because what she said was true. It's just not complete. It's not exhaustive. The mother of Jesus was blessed. Remember, it was Mary herself back in chapter 1 when she heard the news that she would give birth to a son sang a song of praise called the Magnificat. And in that song, <coughs> excuse me, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. I'm going to glorify the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. A recognition of her sin and her need for salvation. For he, the Lord, has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, Mary says, all generations will call me blessed. Blessed. And from what we know, this woman is actually fulfilling those words for the first time. Blessed is the woman. But the correction that Jesus brings out is to say that as blessed as Mary was to nurse Jesus at her breast, even more are we blessed to have the word of God. The real and ultimate question or concern is not our biological connection with someone, what you think even, even what you think about Jesus, but responding to the message of the gospel in obedience to his word. Jesus' correction reaffirms that blessedness is open to all those who hear, all those who respond, all those who obey the word of God. It's not based on your kinship. In other words, God does not have grandchildren. And some of you young folks need to know that. And maybe you were raised in a, in a Christian home, and maybe parents, like raising a child in the admonition of Christ, in the scripture, I mean, all that is good stuff. 
It's all that what we ought to do. But you personally, by the work of the Spirit, must repent of sin and yield your life to King Jesus, trusting in his atoning sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, my sins. And that alone connects us to Jesus by faith and trusting him. Listen, Mary is blessed because she carried and gave birth to the Son of God. Certainly no woman in all of history, in all of history, received a, a higher honor than this, this teenage peasant girl who had the honor of bearing in the womb a child, a baby who would save the world. But the truth is, as far as Jesus is concerned, that those who have the Scripture are more blessed. For greater than the blessed visit upon Mary is the blessing that's given to us who can hear the word of God, who has apps you can open and read scripture. Ultimately, we are more blessed. Unfortunately, it's been said, and maybe from the tradition you're from, I know definitely from the tradition I'm from, that Mary is somehow elevated to a co-redeemer, a co-mediator along with Jesus. That's just simply not true. 1 Timothy is very clear. All of Scripture is very clear. But 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between us and God, and it's the man, her son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary does not connect us to God. Jesus does. Jesus, though, was saying that as blessed as Mary was to be his mother, those who keep and hear and keep his word have a greater blessing. Amazing. She bore the word of God incarnate. You have the word of God written and articulated in the Holy Scriptures. And the blessedness that Jesus speaks about in verse 28 comes with a, um, you know, with, with a, um, a condition attached to it. Look what he says. It's not just simply hearing, it's what? Keeping it, if you have an ESV. The word in the original language means to guard, to watch, to follow, to obey. It's, 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 it's saying it doesn't go in one ear and out the other, like James. You don't just look in a mirror and you forget what it looks like. You don't just hear as of the word, you're doers of the word. We comprehend, we, we hear it in such a way that we are preparing to respond in obedience to it. So as we're sitting under the word of God, being taught and preached, whether it's here or wherever you are, is, is it, okay, speak to me, Lord, I want to hear from your word so I can know your will, know your ways, and walk in them. Is that how we're preparing as we come to get under God's word? Not what Lou says. Well, what the scriptures say and what God is saying to you. Are, 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 we, are we listening with our ears? Are we comprehending in, in preparation to respond to the word of God? Right? So we don't want to make too much of Mary. We don't want to make too little of her as well and dishonor her either. We want to believe what the scripture says. Yes, she should be honored. Yes, she should be respected. Mary should not be the object of our faith, but she is certainly an example of faith. For sure. We... we would it be wonderful for us to have a like faith Mary by the grace of God, to love God, to trust God, to serve Jesus like she did, to have this heartfelt devotion of affection for Christ. Back in chapter 1, when Mary found out what was going on, and the angel Gabriel told her that she will bear a son, the Holy Spirit will come upon her. If you remember that testimony, she responded to the angel this way. She said to the angel, after all that was, that was said to her that was going to take place, she said, chapter 1, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me 
according to your word. Lord, I'm going to accept whatever your word says. Be it done to me according to your word. I hear what your word. I'm willing to walk in it and accept all that is there in obedience to that. St. Augustine who said, Mary was more blessed in accepting the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ, end quote. <clears throat> and there we see Luke sharing this narrative. We see the word of God coming to the crowd. Jesus is teaching the crowd. He's preaching to the crowd. He's, he's, he's uh, leading the crowd with his words as he teaches them as he moves from city to city. And if you think about this in the, in the context of discipleship, of, of mentoring and teaching and preaching to his followers and the binding and overcoming of the strong man, what he's saying is, listen, you, you can't simply sweep under the rug your, your sins, your bad habits, and leave a void, but you need to fill that void not only with Jesus himself, but with my word, with what I'm saying. It's all about hearing and obeying King Jesus and following him, and when we submit to his lordship and his rule over us, it will bring the kingdom of God, the reality of it, the, the presence of it into your life now. And then you could put that no vacancy sign up. No other kingdom, no other dominion, no other lords but the Lord himself. His word is my command. The house is not just swept and put in order to be occupied by seven more evil spirits, but is now ruled by the stronger one. By the stronger one than any evil force. Jesus himself, through his word, and the transfer of our home, the transfer of the reign and rule of our own lives, our own kingship, to his. Jesus is saying, look, true faith, saving faith, is more than some human attempt, some, some moral effort, some self-reformation. No, it takes Jesus to come in, remove the strong man, take up residency, give us a, a new heart and a new life, a new affection that wants to what? Hear God's word, walk in it, and obey it. Not in, order to be, not in order to receive his love and acceptance and forgiveness, right? It's because in the gospel we have it. Are you trying to clean? Are you trying to sweep? Are you trying to get your house in order by your own strength? By your own moral performance? By your own wisdom? Or by hearing, receiving, guarding, following the gospel? Obeying King Jesus. I hope it's by his authority and rule in your life. Then he turns to his generation. Now, if you notice in verse 27, excuse me, 29, the crowds were increasing, it says. And Jesus is going to respond to this crowd that is, that is increasing to an earlier request of seeking a sign. You see this verse, sign in verse 29. Look up at verse 14 as he's casting out demons. Uh, the mute man, people marveled, verse 15, but some of them said, you know, it was by the prince of demons that you did that. But verse 16 says, there were others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. We see it again in our text in verse 29. And you have to ask the question, I know uh, Pastor Chris mentioned it last week, but you got to ask the question that we have been saying for weeks, months, that Jesus is coming in the first advent and inaugurating kingdom is demonstrating that kingdom by authority and power as a sign, as, a, as a, something that, that's what a sign does, point us to somewhere else, to something else. And all this power, all this authority, all this uh, uh, 
power over demons, power over death, is pointing to Jesus as the true king with a true kingdom. So what's the problem with asking for a sign? Notice first what it doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, this wonderful and open-minded generation is seeking a sign. No, he doesn't say that. He says, this generation is an evil generation. The parallel passage in Matthew says, an evil and adulterous generation. In other words, they were pimping after and, and whoring after other gods. You see, the people that kept demanding signs would not have been convinced by a sign that he would do then or a thousand other signs. They were, their seeking of a sign was not an indication of their willingness to believe, but an excuse, a reluctance on their part to believe the adequate evidence that is right there before them. Jesus was saying, you want some kind of special sign that will prove that I'm the Messiah? I'm the, I am God incarnate? How about everything I've just done, including that mute man who was demon-possessed and now is singing Tom Jones. In other words, Jesus was saying, I gave you a sign. It's, it's going over your head. And apparently it's not big enough, not convincing enough of a sign. They wanted something bigger and better, a better sign, a bigger sign. That's what these sign seekers even today do. Nothing's ever big enough. I always want something more. Always chasing after experience. Be very careful. Be very careful. Rather than just believe what God has said in his word. And now at this point, Jesus brings up a story of Jonah and the queen of the south. He's doing it to underscore their response to the word of God. It can never replace Standing on the scriptures can never replace some miraculous sign. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. But no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, if you remember the story, Jonah, a Hebrew, received a call, a clear call from God to go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. Uh, listen, Nineveh is a pagan land. At the time of Jonah's call to go to Nineveh, it was the biggest, cruelest city on the planet. Okay? Capital of Assyria. They hated the Jewish people. Persecuted the Jewish people. It was that city that a Jewish prophet was called of God to go and preach against it. Go to Hamas and preach yeah, no, I'm, I'm going back to Florida. <laughs> but as the story goes, what did he do? He went in the opposite direction, jumps on a ship, heads in the opposite direction to Tarshish. You know the story, raging seas, scared to death, terrified sailors. They take them by the back of their neck and they chuck them overboard. And by grace, God commands his monstrous fist to, to swallow Jonah whole. And while in the belly of the fish for three days, the prophet has a change of heart. That's one way to get a change of heart. Yeah, I'll think I, maybe I should have listened. And God commands, and by grace again, tells the fish, all right, spit him out. Vomits him out onto dry land. What a sight. Jonah then went to Nineveh. He preached to them 
of the coming judgment and then sat and watched the city repent and trust God. (laughs) Jesus connecting his ministry to the prophet Jonah. In the parallel verses in Matthew 12, it says that the sign was just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus is talking about, of course, his death, burial, and resurrection from the grave. In that same way that Jonah was buried in the tomb, like belly of the fish, so Jesus will be buried, and three days he will rise again. And the son of Jonah, the sign of Jonah, is the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the ultimate sign. That's the, the supreme sign. That's the most significant work of God in Christ is his death on the cross, forgiveness of sins, and his glorious resurrection from the grave. The great glorious sign. Is that enough? Is that enough for you this morning? Is that enough for you? Eyewitness account, Jesus crucified. Multiple accounts of an empty tomb. Multiple accounts, eyewitness accounts of seeing him risen from the grave. Is that enough? Triumphing over death? That's the gospel. But as true as that is, I think it's important to see what Luke is doing here as well. He's driving home the response to Jesus' message, the word of God. Right? He just said, blessed rather are you who hear it, the word of God, and keep it. I think that's the point. And the point is the pagan Ninevites heard the gospel, heard that God's grace would come if they would repent of their sins, or he was going to do away with them. They repented at Jonah's message, and the reaction to it was a sign, just as Jesus' message, to repent and believe the gospel was a sign. And then he goes on, not only is he about what Jonah's been preaching and teaching, but he goes on and gives us another narrative from the Old Testament, verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. That reference is to the queen of Sheba. You can find it in 1 Kings chapter 10. She hears about this famous king in Israel named Solomon and all his wisdom. She wanted to see him. She wanted to hear him. So she got a giant caravan and traveled with great treasures, probably from West Africa somewhere which is, you know, on foot and boat. Long, very difficult journey. She made it all the way to Israel. And when she got to Israel, she got to meet Solomon. She toured the treasures. She, she drank at, of his wisdom. She even worshipped in the temple that he built. And she would say in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 79, this is what she said. I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold... The half was not told to me, much more than I thought. Your wisdom and prosperity surpasses the reports that I've heard. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. The queen didn't hesitate to go from curiosity, what do I keep hearing about, to go, I need to find this truth. I need to seek whether this is true or not. In fact, she went to all kinds of trouble, all kinds of expenses, to go, to hear, and to find out for herself what was really true. She came from the ends of the earth. That's a way of saying she came from way out there to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And because she, she sought the truth, she was willing to seek and find the truth, she found it. And Jesus is saying that this, this foreign queen, this Gentile lady, 
But she heard Solomon and saw all that God had done in Solomon. There was something in her that said, that's true. The Lord God has anointed you, blessed you, delighted in you. She recognized the wisdom that had been given to him. She longed and she thirsted for that wisdom and truth. She was drawn to the superior wisdom of Solomon, Israel's wise king. Yet, Jesus says, one greater than Solomon is here. And the contrast is clear. They were in the presence of someone even greater than King Solomon. Jesus Christ, who is wisdom incarnate, reigns and rules as the wisdom of all wisdom and sovereignty as the king of kings. And as great as Solomon was in wealth and in wisdom, Jesus is infinitely greater than Solomon. Now this queen of the south most likely didn't have scripture. She didn't know the word of God. She didn't have the Jewish prophets. Therefore on the day of judgment of that generation, Jesus said they will stand and be condemned because they did not have to travel to the ends of the earth to find the wisdom of God. They had the wisdom, the embodiment of wisdom standing right there in front of them sharing with them the truth of God's word. Jesus himself, the king of kings, standing right in front of them. And then verse 32, he adds, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation as well and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. The pagan and very cruel people of Nineveh recognize God's revelation, God declaring God's word as he reveals himself through Jonah the prophet as he proclaimed judgment and, and called them to repentance but this evil generation doesn't even recognize the king before him, Jesus. In response to the message of Christ with someone greater than Jonah, both in person and in message, standing before them. The people of Nineveh repented. The people of his generation will not. The people of Nineveh didn't have the word of God either. Think about it. The Assyrians weren't scouring the Old Testament scriptures, the, the Torah, the five books of Moses, by any stretch of imagination. But the people that were standing before Jesus had the Torah, had the synagogue, had the religious leaders, had the teaching, had the worship on Saturdays, the, the, on the uh, Sabbath rest. When the prophet Jonah went to pagan Nineveh and preached, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, they repented. Even though they knew much about God, didn't have a Bible. Jesus says, this generation is an evil generation. I preach to you if you've not repented. You have heard a message of grace spoken by the Son of God and you have been given a sign, a man swallowed up by death and rising again in triumph over sin, death, and hell. And you still won't repent. And family, that is a, a call, that is an exhortation, that is, that is a, warning, a, a warning of love. What are you waiting for? If you're here, if you've never really yielded your life and trusted Christ, by saying, I'm a sinner. I'm going to stand before a holy God. I've got nothing to give. I need salvation. I need forgiveness. I need to have my sins and my shames washed, shame washed away. What are you waiting for? The cross of Christ dying on Calvary's hill before all. His glorious resurrection from the grave. His call to come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. Don't be a part of the evil generation. Be a part of the glorious looking forward to the kingdom 
A generation that will spend eternity with Christ. So you have this word of God, you have this sign, and lastly a revelation. Jesus then, by way of analogy, verse 33, likens a lamp that you, likens a lamp that you use to illuminate a dark place in your house to, to that of a, a human eye. You see that in verse 33. It's the eye that is the lamp of the body because it lets light in. Light, light comes in through the eyes. It allows the mind and the heart and the mind and the heart to comprehend and to respond to what the light reveals. We see and we, 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 it's been illuminated for us. We perceive light through the eyes into our bodies. And what Jesus is doing, he's drawing a comparison here in these last verses of the light that goes into the body. And he compares that to a person's spiritual condition. As the lamp radiates light into the room, the eye radiates light into the body. That, that innermost being... That, that, that personality, the, the heart, the affection, the will, all that is in that word there. In fact, you know, you know the, um, in ancient Jerusalem as well, in Judaism, um, you know when you give someone the evil eye. 1 Samuel 18, 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. It wasn't a smile. Italians do it a little bit differently, but... It gave me the eye. It gave me the eye. Just like if your eye, though, is not operative. If you're blind because your eyes no longer work, then your life is what? Dark. You, you can't see. You have nothing to see. But if the eye brings in light, Jesus says, then the whole person is illuminated and he's full of light. See what it says. But this can only happen, a healthy eye can only happen when, when one knows and believes and responds to spiritual truth. That's the point Jesus is making. You can't do it yourself. You can't sweep the house and you can't illuminate light from within you. I don't care what the New Age people tell you. The word healthy actually means single. It can be both a medical connotation, healthy sound, or ethical, single-minded sincerity, integrity. What Jesus was saying is not that difficult to truly understand if you're blind if, if the darkness the blindness then will extend to every aspect of your life your whole life is full of darkness if you do not have the light of christ in your life your heart your soul no matter how well your eyes function naturally you're living in the outer and utter darkness the whole person is corrupted look at 34 the last part. When it is bad, that word is evil, your body is full of darkness. Darkness then becomes your destiny for eternity if you remain in the darkness. But it is possible for the eye to be sound, single-minded, fixed on the good, where the whole person is full of light. You see, the light refers to Jesus. As I said, the proclamation of his word, the message of the gospel, the work and person of Christ. And he's not hidden. He's standing right in front of them. He's standing right in front of you as you got your Bibles open. He's not hiding somewhere. It's not behind a brick or a wall. It is a glorious lamp of the gospel. is not hidden in a basement. His word in the gospel and the word of redemption, his saving work was accomplished on the hill of Calvary, an open stage of human history. Everyone could see it. The cross and the empty tomb are beaming with revelation illumination of the glory of God. To this day, it is still proclaimed all over the world, like a lamp 
like the lamp blazing from a lighthouse, pouring out its light, shining for all to see. One of the, uh, our fifth century church fathers said this, the Father gave us the Son to be a lamp to the world, to illumine us with divine light and to rescue us from satanic darkness, end quote. I like that quote because it fits the context. Jesus himself said what? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but what? Will have the light of life. That's what we're talking about. Listen, the image of darkness, if you don't know this, the image of darkness in Scripture was given to us to describe for us our sinfulness, our fallen condition, the reality that we are by nature children of darkness. We prefer, John tells us, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, we prefer the darkness rather than the light. Because if we stand in the light and we were stripped naked, as it were, all our sin, all our shame, all our brokenness, all our bad choices, all our wicked thoughts, all our false and wicked motives will be exposed. Who wants that? The light of the gospel will do that. That's why we free from it, flee from it. The light of the gospel exposes us until we stop fleeing and we respond and rejoice in the light of the gospel. Why? Because we see in it Forgiveness of our sins, washing of our shame, covered by the righteousness of Christ, not our own. And we want the light to shine. Shine the light, Lord. Show me my way, as the psalmist wrote. Lead me in the way everlasting. I've been forgiven. I've been washed. I've been clothed with his righteousness. I don't run from the light. I embrace it. And here's the warning, verse 35. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. In other words, there's no light but darkness. This warning is for the religious people of his day as for our own day. All of us who may know a lot about Jesus, may even know our Bibles, but yet, you know what we haven't done? We haven't submitted to his lordship. We haven't submitted to his word. We haven't submitted to him as our God and our Savior. And if one is filled with darkness, it is eternal consequences, as I mentioned it will lead to damnation with the prince of darkness, Satan himself. If one is filled with light, one will be radiant at the last judgment. Verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Family, that's the glorious promise. That's the glorious promise. When the Spirit opens our eyes to see the full brightness of Christ, or full brightness of his salvation. The light of Jesus will illuminate the dark corners, the dark places, and expose and repel darkness in our lives. Under the dawn breaks, one writer puts, until the dawn breaks on the eternal day, the dark shadows are chased away, and all is light. Now, Paul, the apostle, in 2 Corinthians, uses this same similar imagery Light and darkness, evil and good, bondage and freedom. And he gives it to us in a way that teaches us and shows us. Let me show you today. I hope, I hope, I hope this brings a, a, a conviction on your part. If you have not trusted Christ, listen to what Paul says about those who reject the gospel. Paul argues that the God of this age, small g, has blinded, there's that word, dark, blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
There's no light. They prefer darkness. Can't see the gospel. Can't see the love of Jesus. Can't see the forgiveness of Christ. Can't see the call to come, repent, believe, and be saved. But, chapter 2, verse 4, that's verse 4. Verse 6 is this. And the positive response to the gospel. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. There's the shining of the light. Shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 6. So, so how, do we, how do we see the light? How do, we, how do we see and treasure the gospel? How do we see and, and let the light into our dark hearts? How do we do that? Listen, family, it is when we see that Jesus Christ, who's the light of the world, paid the penalty for our sins, took the deserved wrath that we deserve, and was cast out into darkness so that we can have his light and we can have his love. As our Savior hung on the cross, as, as, as God's wrath was poured out, the scripture says that darkness covered the land. The whole land was covered in darkness. And it was that time as that Jesus cried out with a loud voice in the darkness as he takes our punishment takes the deserved wrath we deserve upon himself and takes the judgment and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, it was on the cross that God the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. You see, in ourselves, we could never be able, we would never be able to see, to grasp, or to embrace the light of the gospel. But because Jesus went into darkness, took our sin, we can receive the light and love of God. If you see the darkness that fell on Calvary as judgment came upon Jesus as wrath was poured out on him, you see the cry of the forsaken Son of God on our behalf. The light will come. And listen, Jesus tossed into outer darkness so you can have everlasting light. When you see that with your heart, it will melt your heart. It will open your eyes. It will shatter your darkness. That's the paradox. Jesus, light of the world, went to, into infinite darkness so that he could destroy and dispel our own darkness and the love and the light of God can come to you. That's the gospel. As the band comes up, as we transition to communion, think about that. Think about the price that was paid. Think about the darkness that he had to endure so that you can have light. Remind us, the table reminds us of his faithfulness. Reminds us of his great sacrifice who died in our place. Hebrews 10 says, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeated sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Jesus Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, it's over. By taking communion, by drinking the cup, by, by taking the bread and drinking the cup, you are testifying that I have trusted Christ. I place my faith, my personal faith in Christ as my Lord and my Savior. We're confessing that we cannot save ourselves. Listen, in our, ourselves there's only darkness. But through the gospel he has shined his light on us and he has poured out his love on us in Christ. So as we eat of the bread, we proclaim his death. We proclaim his resurrection. I know you think of the Lord's Supper and you think of the proclamation of the Lord's Supper as his death, burial, and resurrection as we eat together. That, you know, even though it's done quietly, even though it's done confidently, we should do it joyfully. And it's really a proclamation. As we eat together, as we drink together, we're declaring 
Jesus is our way of salvation. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has shed his blood. Jesus has rose again. Jesus will come again. That he actually historically reconciled us to our God through the new covenant secured with his blood. He will rise again. He has risen again. He, he has rose again. And we too will rise and spend eternity with him, enjoying pleasures at his right hand forevermore. That's the Lord's Supper. Not only looking back to the cross, but it's looking forward to the crown, to the return of Christ. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Now, the bread represents the body, that was broken, the juice, his blood. And it's not just a time of uh, memorializing or remembering. In a very real sense, family, this morning, right now, Jesus Christ himself, through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, is calling you to come. Calvin said, the sun remains in the heaven, yet its warmth and light are present on earth, so the radiance of the Spirit conveys to us the communion of Christ. The elements don't turn into it, But Christ is inviting us by the presence of the Spirit to come to the table, to remember, to grow, to rejoice in all that Christ has done. The bread, his body broken, his blood was shed for our sins. It's not a king's table, it's a Christian table. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come. If you're not, you have not made a commitment and not yielded your life and been born again by the Spirit, by repenting and believing, then just, we're glad you're here, we love you family table. The band's going to play. We're going to come up when you're ready. Come down the aisles. Grab your element. Sit back down. Then I'll come up and lead us through. Uh, take Partake you together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. God, thank you so much for your word. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The Lord Jesus Christ. And God, thank you that even while he walked the earth, you were superintending over men to record accurately, authoritatively, all that we need to know about you and about salvation. So we thank you for the word of God. Of course, we thank you for the word, Jesus himself. And God, as we celebrate today, as we come to the table, as we take the bread and the cup, God, help us, encourage us, strengthen us, deepen our faith in the gospel, deepen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and help us to not only repent, and, and to, to confess and repent of sin, but celebrate the work of Jesus on our behalf. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.